Well, thank you for joining us once again, and welcome to Grace. And uh, for our lesson today, we want to return to uh, the final epistle written by our apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul. And uh, and no, epistle's not plural for apostle. <laughs> you know that epistle means letter. So we're looking at the final letter Paul wrote as far as the canon of Scripture is concerned. Now, I think, and others think, he wrote other epistles. For instance, he wrote First Timothy before he wrote Second Timothy, and there's much evidence to suggest that Paul wrote First Timothy while while under house confinement in Rome, then was released and went on to Spain and went on and did some further travels, and then was rearrested. And when he was rearrested, that's when he wrote Second Timothy. And there's evidence there for that for that uh, belief. It's not a hill to die on, as uh, as we often say here, but it is out there, and it's something to consider. So we want to return to that final letter, Second Timothy, uh, and this is this letter was written once again to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, uh, the young man who followed Paul, followed in his footsteps, and would take over from Paul after Paul's ministry uh, had been completed. Uh, we know that Paul was nearing the very end of his life in this letter, and the reason we do is because of Paul's words in Second Timothy chapter four, verse six. Where he wrote, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Uh, so Paul became a martyr for what he believed. And, uh, you know, tradition has it that um, he lost his head for his faith. And so, um, you know, it didn't go easy for the Apostle Paul. Tradition has it, by the way, to the degree that we can rely on traditional dating, that Timothy died in Ephesus around 97 A.D., and he died when he was about 80 years old. So this would have put Timothy at about 48 years old when he received this second letter from Paul, at which time Paul would have been around 65 years old. So... Uh, there would have been around 20 years difference in the ages of these two men. Paul's ministry spanned a course of some 30 to 35 years. And uh, Timothy's association with the gospel of Christ would have spanned some 50 plus years if the traditional dating is correct. Uh, whatever the case, in the shorter duration of the Apostle Paul's ministry, think about all that our Apostle been able to witness and all that he had to undergo during that 30-some years of ministry. All that he would saw, all that he faced himself personally. When we glance through the checklist of some of the things that he suffered, and we've gone through these in the past, and you know what they are, we can immediately see that Paul lived through extremely perilous times. Uh, in connection with his life of ministry, for instance, notice the word that Paul used eight different times in a single sentence. And here it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen or the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false uh, brethren. So here in this final letter, Paul would ever write as far as the... The canon of scripture is concerned to close out his ministry on earth. What do we see here? We see Paul using that same word perils over and over and over again. Paul said in second Timothy chapter three, verse one, this know also Timothy, then the last days, what's headed, what's headed this way? Perilous times shall come. Was that something Paul knew nothing about? So you see, I believe Paul was living in what Paul considered to be the last days. The last days is, uh, or those days are, I believe, this dispensation of the grace of God. 
I believe we are living in the last days. And Paul witnessed what Paul witnessed. He was telling Timothy, expect it's coming your way also, Timothy. Perilous times are going to come. They've come in my life. Take a look. And they're going to come in every believer's life uh, who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus, as Paul's going to say later on. This leads us to believe that the Apostle Paul considered this entire economy, this entire dispensation, to be the last days. Uh, in other words, we're living in the last days right now as we speak. Although we know evil men will wax worse and worse, the Bible tells us, uh, we are living in the last days. It should be noted that the Apostle Paul was never appointed to someone's wrath, even though all those perils that he suffered were horrible uh, in his life. He had never been appointed to the wrath of God. But Paul had known um, what Paul didn't know, what God had known about Paul, and the Holy Spirit had known about Paul. Um, the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to tell us. Um, and he told Timothy, just 11 verses later in this same letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Not might, could, there's a good, there's a good chance, uh, but no, they shall suffer persecution. Now we know... That that word persecution covers a lot of territory because that which brings suffering, uh, hurt, heartache, all the turmoil in our lives, it comes in so many different forms. Uh, it's not likely that any of us, hopefully at least, will, will have to face the types of suffering nor the intensity of the suffering situations that the Apostle Paul had to undergo uh, due to taking a stand for the truths God revealed to him, at least I hope not, but as one pastor said long ago, I heard at the beginning of my ministry, we never know. We never know how long we'll be able to meet together and to study God's word together. We never know how long they'll let it continue to go out. Uh, as terror comes our way, and it has in, in our lifetimes, uh, terrorism in this country, we see that we lose freedoms for the sake of safety. We forego freedom for safety. And as that's happened in our time right now, uh, we can see that, yes, those freedoms then allow someone else to decide what we need to hear and what we don't. Uh, because some things could be considered, according to whoever makes these decisions, hate speech. And so, you know, pastors have been attacked for uh, for preaching uh, different subject matter, different things that are in the Bible that they're supposed to proclaim. They're attacked for that. So who knows how long we'll have to be able to do what we're doing right now. So while not being appointed to God's wrath, as proven by the opening statement in each of Paul's letters, Paul proves we're not appointed to God's wrath. How does he open every epistle? Uh, somebody can give me the general statement properly. Grace and peace and peace from whom? From the Father and from our, from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. So God has never appointed believers, um, to be appointed to His wrath. We'll, uh, but He's never said we'll be spared from man's wrath, as we know men have lost their lives throughout the ages. Otherwise, Paul would not have had to suffer. Now, all the, those perils we just read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In addition to those, all those things that we just read, Paul tells us that on five different occasions, he received 39 lashes with a whip um, used by the Jews to scourge those who were disobedient. Uh, on three different occasions, three other occasions, Paul tells us that rather than being subjected to lashing with a whip, he had been caned uh, or hit with a flexible rod by the authorities that detested his message. Uh, Paul said in stripes above measure in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. So in stripes tells us that that Paul was bearing the scars 
uh, from all those beatings that, that he had to undergo in his life. Uh, those beatings and those, the persecution he faced was evident in, in his flesh. Uh, it should go without saying that the Apostle Paul lived in perilous times um, for those who chose to take their stand for the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ. But as offensive as it was for the Jews to think as, uh, of Christ as being their Messiah, it was even more offensive to hear that their sins were sufficient, their own sins were sufficient uh, to merit the cross of Calvary. Um, Christ's crucifixion had been brought about because he had deserved it, is the way that they had reasoned it, uh, not because the satisfaction of God's justice where their own sins were concerned required it. There's a huge difference there. Let me repeat that because I want you to understand what I'm saying here and why Christ was hated so much and Paul's message was um, denounced and rejected. Christ's crucifixion had been carried out in their mind, in their thinking, because he had deserved being crucified. Um, That's how his opponents had reasoned why he was crucified. Not because the satisfaction of God's justice where their personal sins were concerned had required the cross of Christ. So you can see why they hated him so much. The point I'm trying to make is that if the gospel of God was offensive to the Christ rejectors of Paul's day, the gospel of God merely being that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, risen from the dead, and it was offensive, the gospel of Christ became even more offensive to those opposing him. Uh, With the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the cross itself became an offense. It wasn't just that he claimed to be the Messiah, the gospel of God. It was because the cross itself was offensive to them. Um, he had died for their sins, it was being proclaimed. So for Christ to have put away all the sins of all the world by way of his crucifixion and to have done so all by himself proved that, number one, they were sinful men. They were included in that number. But number two, it proved that they stood impotent, totally impotent to participate in the resolution of God's justice where those sins were concerned. In other words, it was impossible for them to fix their sin problem. And that's what was staring them in the face when the cross came about. Uh, there was no way that they could better their position before God. Their unrighteous fleshly condition had condemned them just as it condemns everybody in this room. There's nothing you can do. Now, does that strike you as, well, I could do something. God would be really happy with me, and he'd accept me a whole lot more if I would just do these things. Start doing these things. Stop doing those things. But the reality is you can't do enough things. You could never do enough things. There's not enough things you could do or promise to do or commit not to do. The bad things that would make God accept you, justify you unto eternal life. This is why Christ had to die. This is why the cross had to be in place so that God's punishment for all the sins of all time could be exacted upon his son to satisfy his wrath where their sins are concerned. The pride nature doesn't like to hear that. The one whom they had rejected as being their Messiah was the only one sufficient to accomplish through his cross work what they could not accomplish through their conduct or a lifetime of striving, a striving to, to be satisfiable to God. The cross of Christ stood in direct opposition, folks, um, to their pride, the pride nature of man in general. Uh, the cross of Christ proved that man's attempt at repair is impossible. There's nothing you can commit to do or strive to do. It won't work. If it injured the pride of the Jews to think, of Christ as being the true king, 
the anointed king, the Messiah, how much more did it insult their pride to think that their own sins had required their reject their rejected Messiah's cross? You see what I'm saying with these things? Um, and, and it's amazing. We were listening to the radio on the way up here this morning. It's amazing for Christ to have said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do any of us really know what we're doing? I mean, the words come easy. But do any of us really know the shortcoming we have in this flesh that's unfixable? And that Christ had to, to go to Calvary to pay for our failures. And he did so. And then he said, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. Um, think about that for a moment from Satan's perspective now. Satan has no convincing to do where the satisfaction of God's justice for the sins of mankind is concerned. He, he, can't, he doesn't have to convince anybody because God's fully convinced himself uh, that his son's death at Calvary was a satisfactory payment to resolve that sin issue. Thus, Satan's efforts today must be concentrated in keeping men from understanding and then believing in the sin-resolving accomplishment of Christ's crucifixion. A sin-resolving accomplishment that was proven by way of Christ's payment for sin and then his resurrection uh, from the dead. Uh, so it surprises so many folks today and it really strikes out at the very core of our pride nature and men's pride nature to think that forgiveness isn't the issue. Forgiveness is no longer the issue. Uh, religion makes forgiveness the issue. Well, we've got to get that forgiveness for these new sins. That needs new forgiveness. So next week, if I sin further, I've got to get new forgiveness for that sin. And it just strikes the pride nature that you can't. There is no forgiveness you could get. How can you get forgiveness for something God's not imputing to your account? Uh, you can't. And the Bible tells us God's not counting any man's sin against them today. Why? Because he counted all that sin against his son before we of this age ever drew a breath. All your sins were paid for. So God isn't waiting to forgive you. He's not counting your sins against you. God's waiting for you to wake up and accept the fact that his son took your sins and put them away at Calvary. He's not waiting to save anyone. He's waiting for people to come to a saving knowledge of what his son accomplished for them. So all he's asking us to do is take him at his word. Our sins were gone at Calvary. Uh, and that's an easy thing, but a hard thing for the pride nature to accept. Um, this is why the Apostle Paul wrote at length about the deceptive devices of the devil during this present economy or dispensation. Satan is playing a mind game today. Uh, an extremely deceptive mind game, as Paul revealed in the first four verses of Second Corinthians chapter 4, where he wrote these words. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, now I've underlined those those words, uh, therefore, seeing that we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty and walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What ministry was Paul talking about? What ministry did Paul have in mind when he said, therefore, seeing we have this ministry? He began that passage with these words, therefore seeing that we have this ministry. So again, what ministry had been given to the Apostle Paul? Well, we needn't guess the answer because Paul tells us the answer uh, in the very next chapter of this same letter. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, verses you probably should be able to quote by heart, 
now. And if you've been sitting under my ministry for any time, you know these words. Listen to them carefully because they're words to you. Equally as much as they're words to the, they were words to the saints in Corinth. All things are of God. It was him that did it all. He didn't leave anything for man to do, but just accept him as being uh, true to his word when he tells us what his son did. Who hath already reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And hath given to us, what ministry, Paul? The ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry Paul's been talking about. To wit, or that is to say, that God was in Christ reconciling how many? Reconciling the entire world unto himself. Not imputing, not counting, not reckoning their trespasses unto them. And he's committed unto us that word, meaning the doctrine, the preaching, the message, according to a dictionary, the Greek dictionary, of reconciliation. What did the Apostle Paul just tell us in the preceding chapter? Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of non-imputed sins, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, nor walking in craftiness, now catch this, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but my manifestation of the truth Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. To lead people to believe that God is indeed counting their sins, counting the sins of the world to the world of sinners today, in spite of the fact that the Son of God uh, bore those sins upon himself at Calvary, the ransom price being the very blood that Christ shed on behalf of all mankind, to let people make people think that their sins are still there and they need forgiveness week by week, day by day. That's handling the word dishonestly. Paul just told us. That's dishonesty according to the Apostle Paul. Paul called that walking in craftiness and handling the word of God deceitfully. Because this ministry of reconciliation was given to Paul. And he contrasts that with handling the word of God deceitfully. Why is this deceitful handling of the word of God such a serious issue? Why was it such a serious issue to God that he had Paul tell us about it? Paul gives us the answer to that question as well in his next two statements, verses 3 and 4, which you should also know quite well, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, how would it be hid? By deceitfully handling the word of God. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost. Not saved, but don't know it. Not saved, but just haven't come to understand all the truths of salvation. Um, the Bible doesn't leave us to guess as to salvation, uh, that salvation issue. If our gospel be not seen, hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Now, it's an interesting term. The Greek word translated hid is kalupto, meaning concealed or covered up. So it's not hidden in the word somewhere. It's plain as day when you look at Paul's writings. Satan tries to hide it from men being able to come to understand it. Satan is the one that tries to blind people's eyes to the fact that sin's been forgiven. God forgave that when he charged the debt for that sin to his son at Calvary. Satan doesn't want that known. So there's this thing called religion. (laughs) And religion is about having a place to go, having a place to come and get those sins forgiven. Over and over and over again. That's why we have the rededications, the dedications, the rededications. uh, Over and over throughout our lifetimes is we have to become sin managers. We have to think about managing the sin in our life so that we'll be acceptable to God when Christ is the one who had to make us acceptable with God. And he did at Calvary. Now we have to believe it to be joined to Christ, to be a part of his family. 
How is it hidden and who's covering it up? That's the, the definition of calypto. Who's covering this, tru- this truth of reconciliation up? Well, the verse goes on to say, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the eyes or the minds, uh, have blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them. Satan's main goal in this economy of grace is to keep people from understanding and believing the gospel of Christ and the reality of non-imputed sins. In what way would Satan cover up or hide or steal the truth? Because that word steal is in the Greek with that word hid. In what way would Satan steal the truth of the gospel of Christ from people lest that gospel be seen, understood, and believed? He does so through the handling of the word of God dishonestly or deceitfully, as Paul just told us. This is what the apostle was talking about through his use of the expression, the wiles of the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, he's not... Uh, sneaking around seeing what bad he can bring your way or what harm he can cause you to go through or what physical ailment he might put on you today. That's not his modus operandi. operandi. His, his plan today is to work in the realm of the mind and to keep people from seeing the glorious gospel of Christ. That's his method. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that he might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And there's where we learn about those doctrinal truths in the armor of God that we're to supply, have supplied in our minds so our minds aren't fooled by the deceitful working of Satan. The word translated wiles, now that's, that's an interesting Greek term as well. You'll recognize it immediately. Well, it's an open book test. There it is. Uh, <clears throat> you'll recognize immediately the English word that's been derived directly from the Greek methodia. What word am I, anyone want to venture a guess? It's an open book test that I think everybody passed. Method. <laughs> we get our English method, the wiles of the devil, the method of the devil. It's the word method, or we might even say methodology. The expression, the wiles of devil, has to do with the manner, the system. We might even say the approach Satan uses to keep the gospel of Christ hidden. In other words, his modus operandi, his manner of working, in order to blind men's minds to the truth, um, he employs... He employs cunning methodology when it, when it comes to hiding or keeping concealed the gospel, the good news Paul called the glorious gospel of Christ. And how cunning would he be? Would he be so cunning that the world would spot his cunning, the wiles of the devil immediately? Or would his method be so tricky that the world would, would be apt to fall for it? That the world of religion would really fall for it? Um, so we know the cunning of the devil has to do, the wiles of the devil has to do with his methodology. Uh, what Paul is doing here for us is he's revealing Satan's mind-blinding methodology. Uh, so we need to consider carefully what Paul's telling us here. Let's consider it in point order, in the manner in which the apostle Paul's laying it out for us. We already know point one is that Satan is a master counterfeiter. Uh, Satan is a master tricker, <laughs> a counterfeiter. In other words, he puts the fake up beside the real, and the fake looks so much like the real that you'd think the fake is the real. Uh, we know he's a master counterfeiter. We noted that truth in our previous lesson. The very fact that Satan will presenting, be presenting a false Christ that he wants people to believe is the real Christ and will look like they would think the real Christ would appear. 
is a major part of Satan's mind-blinding methodology. He's a master counterfeiter. A counterfeiter is that which a, a counterfeit is that which appears as the real, but is not the real, is not the genuine. Point number two is this: Satan's target. What he really wants to target in blinding the eyes to the glorious gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of Christ itself. So he wants to counterfeit the gospel of Christ. So you, when, he, when you'd hear words, especially within a religious context, you'd think, that's the gospel those folks are preaching. There it is. As the Apostle Paul just said, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan is blinding men's eyes to the truth of the gospel of Christ by clever, cleverly counterfeiting the gospel of Christ. Included in his anti-gospel methodology is to have doctrine being taught that looks very much like the gospel of Christ, but actually is contrary to the doctrine Paul taught where the gospel of Christ is concerned. It's as simple as that. Satan's goal is to hide the sin-resolving accomplishment of the cross of Christ. Just put out a false message. Put out a false gospel that men would perceive as being the true gospel because it will look so much like the true gospel. Point number three is Satan has a counterfeit message. He's a great counterfeiter. His target is to counterfeit the gospel of Christ. So definitely he has a counterfeit message. Of course, someone has to be teaching the word of God dishonestly, handling the word of God deceitfully, uh, because they themselves have been deceived, according to Paul, in order for Satan to achieve his mind-blinding goal as to what the ministry of reconciliation is all about. This is where point number four of Satan's anti-truth methodology comes into play. Why would Satan choose, or who would he choose, is a better question, to use to present his false or counterfeit message? That's simple enough. As with all the other questions Paul's answered for us, he didn't leave us guessing as to this one. Paul puts Satan's methodology of concealing the glorious gospel of Christ right out in the open in order to make us fully aware of it. Point number four is that Satan's ministers will appear as God's ministers. In fact, you'd think they are godly men, godly ministers. Paul opened this up to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, where he said, Therefore, it's no great thing. Don't be surprised. Don't let this throw you for a loop. Don't be fooled by the deceitful handling of the word of God. It's no great thing if Satan's ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. What a clever system of deceit uh, Satan uses. Paul put out a message that appears to you. Paul put out a message that is the genuine. But all Satan would have to do was put out a message that appears to be a genuine good news message to those hearing it, even if it really isn't a good news message at all from the standpoint of the gospel of Christ, as Paul proclaimed it, and people will be apt to believe it. And then have that counterfeit good news message presented by those who considered themselves and who others would consider to be God's ministers. Point number five. Satan camouflages the lie with the truth. You see how clever he is? He hides the lie within the truth. Another way of saying it is this, Satan drenches his poison with sweet-smelling perfume. <laughs> and he really does. He camouflages his lie with the, with the goodness men are seeking. Whereas the Bible tells us a little leaven leavens how much of the loaf? The whole loaf. Rats love cornmeal. Uh, we know that. They, they're seeking what in all other ways to them would be good. 
But a pinch of strychnine and a bowl of cornmeal does what to the rat? It kills the rat. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us that Satan knows what it takes to sell the fake. And he points, he, he puts a pinch full of doctrinal strychnine in a bowl full of truth. And what are people seeking today? Truth. Help. Help in this time of our need. And he puts, offers that help everywhere and puts strychnine in the help. Satan would not want it to be obvious to his audience that this counterfeit, these counterfeit ministers are counterfeit ministers. And what great counterfeiter would want his counterfeit message to appear to be a counterfeit message? Not if he's a good counterfeiter. The answer is definitely not Satan. <laughs> if Satan wants his ministers to appear genuine, he'd certainly want their message to appear genuinely, would, would he not? Uh, for those watching this lesson, I'm showing you two $20 bills to illustrate my point here. Um, one is a genuine $20 bill, while the other is a cleverly designed counterfeit, a fake. Can you spot the fake? I couldn't. If you were a counterfeiter, now man's able to counterfeit the fake so closely that someone it takes someone specially trained to tell which one of those is the fake. And man isn't the counterfeiter of the gospel of Christ. Who's the counterfeiter of the gospel of Christ? Satan himself. How clever is he? Would men just spot the fake in a second and say, well, that's not true there. That's, that's the fake. How closely would you want your counterfeiter to appear as the genuine if you were going to counterfeit? Uh, how much of the real would you want to be included in your counterfeit? How much of the genuine? Stands to reason that you wouldn't want to use red ink in your, in your production process if you were counterfeiting bills. Uh, you'd want to use the genuine color. Uh, you'd want your counterfeit to appear as closely as possible to the genuine in order to pass it off quickly and without question. And that's what Satan does with the gospel of Christ. As with any clever counterfeiter, the more of the true, the more of the genuine contained in the counterfeit, the more genuine the counterfeit will appear. This tells us that Satan's gospel-hiding methodology will make use of lots of God words. But it will be a deceitful handling of God's word. In order to put out a deceitful message, a counterfeit message, it only stands to reason that Satan would want to include sufficient facets of truth in his counterfeit messages such that those facets of truth hide the fundamental lie upon which those facets of truth are resting. How much real... How much good would a master counterfeiter want to include in, the false, in a false message about the gospel of Christ? The answer is a sufficient amount to sell the fake. Uh, the best counterfeit, counterfeiters hide the lie within that which otherwise appears totally genuine. This tells us that Satan's ministers of righteousness might very well be proclaiming a lot of good things. If you think about it, why not? But those facets of truth will be hiding a dangerously deceptive foundation, a false foundation, a foundation that goes directly contrary to the gospel Paul proclaimed, and his foundation is the glorious gospel of Christ, which is the ministry Paul was talking about in the same context here, uh, the glorious gospel of Christ. Satan wants that hidden. That's all a part of Satan's wiles, his methodology when it comes to counterfeiting and thus hiding the gospel of Christ that must be believed 
for justification unto eternal life. Again, according to the Apostle Paul, it is the gospel of Christ itself that Satan's primary target when it comes to his counterfeit message. If Satan can get men focusing upon the good things in the message, the messages of his ministers of righteousness that they're hearing, they won't see the false foundation of those ministers as being such a deceitfully serious thing, will they? Because there's so much good in there. Well, we can chew the meat and we can throw away the bones, can we not? A lot of folks would say, we can filter out the bad and we can hang on to all those good things we're hearing. There's a lot of good in what that man or those men are saying. And we can listen and, and hang on to those good things. But, but if what Paul, the Apostle Paul is telling us is true here, to buy the meat is to knowingly or unknowingly validate the bones to which that tasty meat is attached. Do you hear what I'm saying? Notice Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. I know these words are not unfamiliar to you. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that's Satan's methodology. It's an attack on the gospel. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let that person be accursed. Let him to you be anathema. I have nothing to do with him. Paul made that statement twice. Notice that Paul didn't say, if his message is devoid of anything that's good, let him be anathema to you. If there's nothing good to be found in a minister's message, stay away from that minister. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say, grab hold of the good and filter out the bad. Paul's telling us to look at the foundation upon which any minister's message is based. Look at the foundation. And if that foundation is contrary to the gospel of Christ, run away from, don't run to, run away from that. The gospel of Christ is not a can-do gospel where the sins of mankind are concerned. It's not something Christ can do for your sins or or can do for you. Um, The gospel of Christ is a message of what Christ and Christ alone has already done. He's already accomplished it where the sins of the world are concerned. How much more thrilling to your heart to know that God never had to make a decision whether to save you or not, personally. Because I grew up thinking God has to make a decision whether he's going to forgive my sins. And I want him to forgive them, so I've got to ask him and then he'll forgive them. How much more thrilling, liberating, freeing is it to know that God already made the decision where you personally are concerned. He's already made that decision to save you. So he did all the saving work. He's not, there's no more saving work for him to do. He's merely waiting for you to believe in the saving work that he's already done where each of us is concerned. That's a freeing message. And he did that all by himself without any input from, any promise by, or assistance of those for whom he died. He didn't need our help. He did it by himself. Uh, So follow the order Paul's given us once again thus far. Satan's a master counterfeiter. Point two, his primary target is the gospel of Christ, which is the good news of the accomplishment of the cross work of Christ, where the sins of mankind are concerned. Satan wants to hide from men what the the cross of Christ accomplished and keep sins in the mind of men right where they were prior to the cross of Calvary, where Christ bore them upon himself. Uh, Point number three is that Satan has a counterfeit message. I actually counterfeit messages that will appear right unto men. Therefore, the messages of his ministers of righteousness will uh, include sufficient facets of truth as to hide the lie those truths are being built upon. 
Point number four is that Satan will be propagating his gospel of Christ, hiding lie through ministers that appear to be proclaiming the truth. All outward appearances would have us believe in the mannerisms and everything else. The, the men, the, the numbers and the mannerisms and the approach and the speech, the whole thing will appear so wonderful and we'll say, that's godly. Listen to all the good things that are there, but on what foundation are those things based? Just as will be the case with all religiously minded unbelievers at the great white throne judgment, these ministers of righteousness, ministers who are adding the necessity of man to do his part, in order for Christ's part to have accomplished anything at all, they'll be judged for their works of righteousness uh, that they will have supposed in that day to have merited them an everlasting presence uh, with the God who spoke the universe into existence. Um, how can a man know? How could a man know if he is one of Satan's ministers of righteousness? And how can a person know if he's listening to one of Satan's ministers of righteousness? The answer is by the gospel underlying that man's message. It's as simple as that. Is it a Christ must yet do message where your sins are concerned? Or is it a Christ has already done all that need be done where your sins are concerned? Um, and where the God's justice for those sins is concerned? Is that the foundation upon which that man's message is based? Uh, did Christ actually resolve God's justice? When he died on Calvary bearing the sins of mankind? Or did Christ only make it possible for the resolution of God's justice when he shed his own blood in payment for those sins? Did Christ alone put away the sins of the world? Or does man have his own part to play in order that his sins finally be put away? Um, don't think for a moment that Satan has no interest in hiding the distinction that's resident in those two questions. God's adversary... Uh, would have for us to think they are one and the same thing, but they're not. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ as he spoke to the pharisaically reminded religious religionists of his day. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 22 and 23. And I know you've seen these verses in the past. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy, thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then while I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why? There's no foundation. There may be a bowl full of good, but there's a pinch of strychnine that's been the foundation sitting within that bowl full of good. Three different times the statement, in thy name, appears in that single passage. Uh, the ministers of righteousness that Paul's pointing out to us here as we approach the return of Jesus Christ will be ministers who consider their preaching to be a wonderful work for the Lord. And there be maybe many for many wonderful and appealing facets to the messages they're proclaiming. But facets without a foundation, folks, facets without a foundation will not lead to justification unto, unto eternal life. Facets without a gospel of Christ foundation won't merit anyone a gift decree of righteousness, no matter how much good is sitting in the bowl containing even a pinch of doctrinal leaven. Um, Point number five was that Satan surrounds the truth with that, with, with that which looks genuinely good. What did Paul just tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them who are lost. Now, the word lost is the Greek apolumi. Apolumi, which is a combination of two Greek root words. Apo, meaning off, or apo, meaning off, or away from, added to the primary, alumi, meaning perish or destroy. When put together... 
the idea is that of being destroyed away from something. Here again, we might ask the question, what will those who are lost, uh, those who do not believe the gospel of Christ and have bought into a counterfeit message being proclaimed to Satan's min- by Satan's ministers, what will they be destroyed away from? Has the Apostle Paul not given us the answer to every question we've asked thus far? He tells us what we're going to be destroyed, what people that are buying into the false will be destroyed from. His answer sits in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. We'll take it two verses at a time, beginning with verses 7 and 8. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When? When what? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God... And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't obeying by doing certain things and, and abstaining from other things. This obedience is to a message. This obedience is to believe a message. Paul called that the glorious gospel of Christ, meaning the message that God gave him to proclaim concerning the sin-resolving accomplishment of the crosswork of Christ that Paul called the ministry of reconciliation. When Christ's vengeance will be roaring... What will we be doing? We'll be resting, according to Paul. We'll be resting because he's going to catch us up off of this planet before he pours out his wrath upon those who refuse to believe the gospel of Christ. Those who have bought into, willingly, a message that was a counterfeit message. Moving on to verses 9 and 10, we see what awaits those who fall prey to the reconciliation opposing message of Satan's ministers of righteousness. Here it is. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's what the word lost means. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord is their fate. And from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints. And to be admired in all them that believe. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. What was Paul's earlier statement about those who are lost? We'll let him repeat it once again. If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them who are lost. So to be lost is to be destroyed away from something, as we learn in a dictionary from the Greek. And as Paul's telling us here, that everlasting destruction away from something will be away from the presence of the Lord. This is why the preaching of the gospel of Christ is a hill to die on, uh, an expression borrowed from the Marines who actually said, choose the hill you want to die on. Um, Paul's telling us that the gospel of that God gave him to proclaim the gospel of Christ is a hill that all believers of Paul's gospel should be willing to die on. When it comes to what we're hearing, what we're saying, what we're doing, what we're listening to, Satan is a master counterfeiter. Satan's counterfeiting target is the gospel of Christ. The Satan has a counterfeit message and his ministers will appear to be God's ministers. And through those ministers, he will camouflage his lie with facets of those things that appear genuinely good but built upon a faulty foundation. Point number six is this. Satan will appeal to men's emotions. Satan will be making his appeal to men's emotions. I'm sure you recall this passage from our previous lesson as we had come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. As we approach the return of Jesus Christ, the ladies will become increasingly more vulnerable to Satan's stealthy attack as the messages of his ministers of righteousness become increasingly more appealing to their emotional makeup. 
it isn't an absence of seeking, if you look at Paul's statement there. It isn't an absence or reluctance toward learning. That's the issue because they have that, that desire. That won't be the problem as we approach Christ's return, according to Paul. He's just told us that they will be ever learning, yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, I think we can thank God that we we have Paul's gospel before us, and we've come to understand Paul's gospel. Uh, the problem is that Satan's ministers of righteousness will always be offering more in the realm of the emotions, and especially where ladies are concerned. Uh, in other words, fleshly emotions will begin trumping sound doctrine. Uh, Paul takes us there in the very next chapter, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where warning Timothy, Paul said, for the time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, after their own, in this case, emotional cravings, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. I see it in this light. You might see it differently, but I see it in this light. I want to feel what I'm not experiencing. I want to have the rest that I'm not realizing. And Satan's ministers of righteousness will be Johnny on the spot to offer their formulas for obtaining in the fleshly realm, the emotional realm, what can only come through trusting in the faithful supply that we already have in Christ in the spiritual realm. Uh, In other words, there will be a shift away from resting in spiritual reality and toward seeking fleshly satisfaction experientially. Uh, As Satan's ministers of righteousness will be offering that fulfillment by way of formula, if you know what I mean. Five steps to fill in the blank. Uh, 52 ways to experience fill in the blank. The key to fill in the blank once again. Visit, quote unquote, a a gospel or Christian bookstore, and you'll see what I'm talking about. There is seemingly no end to the how-to books. And, and of course, every book comes at a what? At a cost, at a price. Um, don't misunderstand. There are very good books out there. I'm not picking on book, you know, good books that are written. There are many good books, helpful books written by ministers, no less. But the question remains, what gospel message lies at the foundation of the writing, or the writer for that matter, and should we even care? If we know how Satan is doing his work today. The Apostle Paul said, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, emotional cravings, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The rest that is in Christ spiritually. The fact is, sneaking into house and doesn't have to come by way of the front door today or even the back door, does it? doesn't have to come with opening a window, a side window. Very seldom does it ever come in that manner. Today, ministers of righteousness have access into houses by way of the television and the Internet, where the offerings are endless, as you folks well know. But on what broadcast or in what self-help book do you see the message of reconciliation being offered um, to those who are hurting emotionally? The appeal is always toward what God can do in the fleshly realm rather than upon what God has already accomplished for all of us in the spiritual realm that we can rest in and that we can rely upon even when our worlds are turned upside down from fleshly perspective. Has mankind not always had a problem in relying solely upon God as the only true source of all that we need? Do we not all have that problem? I know I do. I'll be honest. The fact is, 
that as, as long as we're dwelling in these earthly tents, we'll all have earthly related problems. They're coming our way. We're all going to have emotional hurts, emotional longings, emotional pain. I'm sure the Apostle Paul had his. I know that I've had mine. I'm just as fairly certain that you've had your own along the way. The onslaught of the world on the flesh is endless. But, but of this I'm also certain, the fix to the emotionally hurting will never be realized as long as that fix is sought for apart from the word of truth itself with a proper foundation in place. And resting solely upon what the word of God is telling us, that upon how God views us apart from our past experiences and the way they've led us to view ourselves and others. Uh, as we move closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the emphasis will not be on the believer's spiritual completeness and our future assurance, but it'll be more and more upon an emotional fix through fleshly experience. That's where it's going. What people should know and therefore be determined to rest in will be replaced by what they're able to see and able to feel and able to experience in the fleshly realm. It's a trust problem, folks. It's a trust problem. We all share in it, every one of us. There was a statement made by a former president that you might recognize. Uh, trust but, what's the next word? Absolutely. Trust but verify. That is, was really a Russian proverb. But President Reagan used it on multiple occasions in the context of nuclear disarmament, as some of you know. My point is this. How have we believers adopted that Russian proverb, that axiom, in our relationship with God. Trust but, are we willing to trust God? Yes, but we want to verify our, that our trust is valid, don't we? So we want to see some things from God that we can experience emotionally. We want the fix to verify the trust. We say we're trusting in the Lord, but when we're unable to verify the fix we've been longing for and praying for and the problem persists, how quickly do we waver in our trust? The truth is we're no different from the people of Israel who were trusting in God on day one and what happened on day two when they couldn't verify that he was there on day two. Uh, their trust grew wings and it flew to never never land. That trust was gone. Their trust went only as far as what they were able to experience at the moment. And don't think that Satan doesn't know that to be true to some extent for all who are dwelling in fleshly human tents, each of us. And that includes us believers. And don't think that Satan isn't willing to use that fleshly weakness where hurting mankind is concerned through his appeal to men's emotions through a fix not based on a truth foundation of the gospel of Christ. This brings us to point number seven in our study of the methodology of Satan's mind-blinding efforts to the truth of the gospel of Christ during this age of grace. Here it is. Satan will be working in the realm of superstition and the supernatural to accomplish his goal. Here it is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Now just as, and just, I put just in there because it's included in that meaning of that word as. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate or unapproved concerning the faith. Paul's just invoked the names of two people, Jannies and Jambres, in connection, direct connection context-wise, with the false teachers leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. In the very same way that Jannies and Jambres withstood Moses, Paul said Satan's ministers of righteousness will be operating in opposition to the truths relayed by Paul in the last days. The question 
at this point becomes this. In what ways did Jannies and Jambres resist Moses? Well, according to, to ancient documents and inscriptions uncovered in ancient Egypt, Jannies and Jambres are identified as the magicians who withstood Moses before Pharaoh. Now, don't think of the word magic as we think of the word magic today, the rabbit in the hat, something hidden up the sleeve. That's not the type of magic that was in place in that day. It was sorcery in that day. It was using evil spirits, uh, conjuring up uh, Satan's work in the background to accomplish uh, what he wanted to accomplish uh, in that day. Think back to the book of Exodus chapter 7. When Moses demanded that Pharaoh release the people of Israel from their Egyptian captivity, Moses speaking for God, God told Moses he would multiply his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt so that the Egyptians would know that he, that he was the Lord. <laughs> now let's go back to Exodus chapter 7 for a moment and pick it up with verses 9 and 10. When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take a rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it, that rod became an actual serpent. Did the supernatural take place that day? Moses, most certainly it did. It had been the Most High God that had brought that miraculous event about. But then Jannies and Jambres stepped up on the stage and in a manner of speaking, and let's continue the text with verses 11 and 12. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now those magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. We know that God was capable of performing the miraculous. But what about the magicians of that day? What about Jannies and Jambres? Were they not also able to perform the miraculous? Had it been only sleight of hand? Was it simply illusion, a trick? Had it only been sleight of hand? Well, or did Jannies and Jambres actually bring about the miraculous? What does it say in verses twelve? Or in verse twelve, there it says they cast down their rods and they became serpents. And that wasn't the only miraculous event Jannies and Jambres were able to bring about through their enchantments or sorcery. If you're not convinced, neither was Pharaoh. Notice this second uh, contest in verses 19 through 22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying unto Aaron, Take thy rod, stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Verse 20 and 21 continue. And Moses and Aaron did what God told him to do, as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The Bible goes on to say they were digging beside the river to see if they could dig down to some clean water. There's no question that God brought about a miraculous event described in that passage. We all know that God's perfectly capable of performing the miraculous. But again, what about Jannies and Jambres? Would Satan be able to work on their behalf in their opposition to Moses? The answer sits in Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. They did the exact same thing. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. Jannies and Jambres duplicated the miracles that God had brought about. 
but the power source behind those miraculous events had not been the Most High God. It had been the God, little g, of this world, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls him in Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, the Greek word translated blood in that passage literally means blood, not colored water. Uh, it wasn't a fake. They didn't drop some tablets in the, in the spring and make it appear like blood. So again, was it sleight of hand that turned all the water in, in all the rivers, all the ponds, all the pools, all the vessels into blood? Was that simply an illusion? If scripture is correct, it was neither. It was actually a supernatural event, a miraculous event performed by the power of Satan on behalf of Jannies and Jambres. Every time God performed a miraculous event, the magicians, Jannies and Jambres, duplicated what God did. They didn't do something different than God would do. Uh, they duplicated God's own miracles. They did precisely as God had done. That shouldn't surprise us in light of Satan's fifth I will in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14. I will be just like the Most High God. We might as well mention the third miracle that's recorded in Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. This miracle involved frogs. Uh, you may recall this story from your Sunday school days. God had told Aaron... That if Pharaoh continued to refuse to let Israel go, the Israelites go, he would bring forth frogs upon the land. This wouldn't be about a frog here or a frog there. Uh, this would be about frogs everywhere such that Pharaoh would absolutely know that it was the power of God that was being put on display. God said that he would smite all the borders with frogs. And God meant exactly what he said. Notice verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly which shall go up and come into thine house and into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed and into the house of thy servants and upon thy people and into thine ovens, into thy kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come up on both on thee and upon thy people and upon all thy servants. That's a lot of frogs, isn't it? <laughs> Climb into bed at night and you reach over and you want to put your arm around your honey and you grab a handful of frog. That wouldn't be something that would be very, uh, very appealing. I know some of you are saying, well, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> As you can imagine, when Aaron cast down his rod at the command of the Lord, the Bible tells us the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. No doubt about it, God was capable of performing the miraculous. But those who are resisting the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, had a power source working on their behalf. And that power source had been none other than Satan himself, the one who proclaimed that he would be just like the Most High God. The telling verse is verse 7 where these words are recorded. The magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. The frogs brought forth by the magicians, Jannies and Jambres, hadn't been hidden up a sleeve. We know they didn't. Uh, they weren't hiding in a top hat to be pulled out at an appropriate moment because this had not been sleight of hand. It had not been illusion. It had not been trickery. It had not been magic in the sense we understand magic today. This had been nothing short of the miraculous. There was a power source involved with what these, these opponents of the Most High God and therefore resistors of Moses were capable of doing. That power source had been none other than the one who had proclaimed that he would be just like the Most High God. Everything that God did, Jannies and Jambres duplicated by way of their counterfeiting power source. Even though God was able to stop them in their tracks and out-miracle them, in a manner of speaking. Nevertheless, Satan was the power source behind what we might call copycat miracles. So if the miraculous is being claimed to be being performed today uh, by way of ministers of righteousness, this foundation is not the gospel of Christ, 
Would it be a copycat miracle? You suppose the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, Paul calls him, would be willing to perform the miraculous today in order to keep a person involved in a religious system devoid of the gospel of Christ uh, being taught in that system in order to, to captivate their minds, to blind their eyes to the truth? Do you suppose this might also be why God told the Apostle Paul to tell us what he told uh, the fleshly-oriented, emotionally-driven saints in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. According to the author of the letter to the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that author, knowing full well and believing Pauline doctrine, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now let's take what we've learned about the counterfeiter, counterfeiting capabilities of Satan, and let's return to Paul's warning to Timothy about the days leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Here it is, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to, next two words, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons. This statement about seducing spirits was made in the direct context of false doctrine being taught in the latter times, deceitfully handling the word of truth. But we've just seen the testimony of Scripture about the capabilities of Satan in the realm of the miraculous, and Paul said the mystery of iniquity doth already work in his day. We know that one day the Antichrist is going to come upon the scene, and he's, he's going to come with all power and signs and lying wonders. According to scripture, counterfeit wonders, of course, because Satan is the greatest of all counterfeiters. However, Paul told, uh, just as Paul told Jannies and Jambres, the miracle workers, um, the false teachers of the days leading up to the return of Jesus Christ would be working in opposition to the truths and they or their mouths will be stopped. Who will stop them? The returning Christ himself. Uh, this is where we'll leave it for our study today and we'll take a closer look at Satan's working with men in the realm of superstition and in the realm of the supernatural um, in our next study. We'll close with 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, emotional cravings, shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Uh, let's leave it there, and uh, we'll close in prayer. And uh, I thank you folks for coming. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for another day of grace, another opportunity that we each have to uh, to take the message out to others, the, the ministry of reconciliation. It's been committed to us as ambassadors of Christ that uh, we might open the eyes and, and open the minds of those through your word, have your, your word doing the work, not us, but your word doing the work, that our foundation be set and that we guard that foundation uh, that we make sure that our foundation is the gospel of Christ and anything built on another foundation, no matter how good it appears, uh, we've got to question. Uh, thank you that all we need for life and for ministry in this age is sitting in your word. If we just return to your word and most of all, trust in what you've told us to be true. We thank you for all things. I thank you for the folks that are here today. Uh, we thank you for the grace. Your grace has been displayed to us through your son and for his gracious gift on our behalf. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.